What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 100 and something of the podcast. I never could remember what episode number it is. But uh, but needless to say, uh, we've been around for a long time. But uh, if you're just tuning in for the first time, basically what we try to do here on this podcast or what I do here on this podcast is invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been no- newly published or recently published on uh, something we think you guys would like to hear a conversation about. And then at the end of the podcast, or you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, go ahead and uh, give the book a purchase yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. Mark Moyer, and Dr. Moyer is the William P. Harris Chair in Military History at Hillsdale College. And prior to that, he served as the Director of the Office of Civilian Military Cooperation at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And prior to that, he directed the Project on Military and Diplomatic History at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and taught at the U.S. Marine Corps University, the Joint Special Operations University, and Texas A&M University. You may have seen his writing in the Wall Street Journal, or the Washington Post, the New York Times, City Journal, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, Bloomberg, The Daily Beast, National Review, among other places. And uh, his books include A Question of Command, Counterinsurgency from the Civil War to Iraq, Strategic Failure, How President Obama's Drone Warfare, Defense Cuts, and Military Amateurism Have Imperiled America, Aid for Elites, Building Partners and Ending Poverty with Human Capital, Oppose Any Foe, The Rise of America's Special Operations Forces, and Triumph Forsaken, The Vietnam War 1954-1965. And lastly, he is the author of Triumph Regained, The Vietnam War 1965-1968, which was published back in January by Encounter Books and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Moore, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, no problem. So this book, Triumph Regained, is the sequel to Triumph Forsaken, uh, which came out back in 2006, I believe, and and caused mm-hmm. quite a bit of a stir <laughs> in uh, academic circles and military history circles. So uh, this is the second book in a, obviously in a trilogy, you're, uh, I guess you're going to wrap up the rest of the war in the next volume. Uh, but uh going back to i mean almost 20 years now or maybe even 20 years now i don't know exactly when you started writing it what uh what made you want to write these books and and tell this story what was what was the genesis of this of this whole project well i was always interested in military history growing up and initially was more interested in world war 2 but uh when i got to college i took a course on the vietnam war and I also started meeting some Vietnam veterans, and <clears throat> what the veterans had to say didn't match up at all with what the college course was saying and what the general media and historical profession were saying about Vietnam. So I spent more time digging into it and 
became more and more convinced that what the American people had been told by the intelligentsia about Vietnam was partisan and in many cases wildly inaccurate. So I, I first did a, a book on uh, pacification. That's my first book back in 1997. And then I did Time Forsaken, which was a much more comprehensive part uh, on the first part of the war up to 65. And I originally was going to do a single volume on the war as a whole, but there's just so much information. That book was in the size of two regular academic books. Um, the new one's also uh, voluminous. And part of the reason is that you need tremendous amount of documentation to be able to withstand the inevitable attacks uh, that have come. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, there's been a, a break in between the, uh, for those of us who are considered right of center in the academic world is a very different place. And it's not as uh, easy to um, find times to do everything you want. So I, uh, I also got pulled into some of the things happening with Iraq and Afghanistan wrote these other books in the interim but now i'm back back on vietnam and i'm now at hillsdale college which is quite a nice place and uh, <laughs> so we'll now work uh, on the, the third and fall, fi uh, final volume which will go from 69 to 75. Mm -hmm. yeah would you say that vietnam or the vietnam war is probably the most misunderstood war um in American history for the everyday American, uh, what we've been, uh, or what the culture at large has been sort of telling us about Vietnam for the last, uh, you know, 60, almost 60 years now, um, that it was a, uh, a wrongheaded, unjust war that we had no business being there, um, et cetera, et cetera, and that there was something, you know, like the in the 80s when all these like Vietnam films were coming out, and there was, uh, you know, Platoon, which I actually just rewatched um, not that long ago, and it's actually like I hadn't seen it in about 20 years, and it's, I it shocked me how ham-handed and like just a truly awful movie that is, and it's the one best <laughs> picture or whatever. Uh, it's just, mm -hmm. uh, anyway. Uh, but you know, like the, that Vietnam was sort of like uniquely weird. Um, and no one, like the, the guys who were there didn't understand why they were there. And, you know, nobody at home really understood why we were there. And, um, uh, you know, is, uh, is is Vietnam more understood, you think, than any other American conflict? Yeah, I do think that is the case, and a lot of that is has to do with the partisan partisanship surrounding it. I mean, the only other war where we've had that much partisanship was, of course, the Civil War, um, and uh, there were a lot of obviously lots of disputes about that, but that's now um, you know, sort of uh, old history. But mm. Vietnam is still one where there is a lot of new information coming out, and I attribute a lot of it to the fact that you have this um, shift on college campuses, which I cover in this volume. Mm -hmm. you know, up until the 1967, there is actually very little opposition to Vietnam on college campuses, and it's only in the middle of 67 
that you have this upsurge. And, and so I looked at, well, why, why is that? The war's not changing. There's nothing major happening in Vietnam that wasn't happening before. And it turns out, and veterans of the era have, have written about this, as I found from some digging, they, the draft rules changed in the middle of 67 that re- eliminate a lot of the exemptions for college students who want to go to graduate school. And so this really triggers this massive opposition, and it also coincides with the uh, rise of the baby boomers on campus. They're just arriving on campus, too, and you have Mm -hmm. this sort of pampered generation. And so they turn against the war, and then, you know, a lot of them, you know, initially are just extremely critical of those who do go to war. Later, they feel a bit guilty about it, but they have to prove to themselves, to their families, to the country, why they didn't go to Vietnam. And so the reason is that, well, this was a terrible, awful, nasty war, uh, totally different than any others. Now, I would argue that the war itself is actually pretty similar to the Korean War. You have aggression from north to south against an American ally who is not democratic, but is better than the communists. And so ever since, you've had this massive distortion. And if you look at who writes about Vietnam especially in, among academics and journalists, almost none of them were in Vietnam. They were in from the groups that didn't chose not to go. Uh, and uh, most veterans were not welcome into academia or journalism afterwards, and so they feel their voices have not been heard. So that was you know, one of the central reasons why I did this, is to help get the view of Vietnam out that is what is consistent with the veterans themselves actually saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, the treatment of veterans uh, uh, by the American public of Vietnam vets uh, is itself particularly unique. Is it seemed like? I mean, obviously, we've all heard the stories of um, you know the the far left activists and whatnot. You know, calling these guys baby killers and spitting on them and stuff like that. And um, mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it seems like for the American public, I mean, because I was a, I you know I was born in the early 1980s, and uh, you know so the Vietnam vets um, when I was a small child, uh, you know weren't that old yet, you know they were in their late 30s or you know, early 40s and whatnot. But it seemed like the American, even for like the just casual average American, didn't really seem to know um, how to treat the Vietnam veterans, I mean, the World War II generation, those guys, I mean, everyone under, I mean, we won that war, um, you know, and it was against, you know, really bad people. So it was very sort of black and white, good versus evil thing. And, uh, you know, the the soldiers in that war were sort of uh, faded appropriately. Uh, Vietnam, it seems like people just really didn't know how to approach veterans about the war itself or uh or really seem to know how to like talk about it i you know i guess you know what i mean or just Mm -hmm. discuss the thing uh it seems like uh the vietnam soldier had a very unique experience um in that regard among american servicemen uh you know who fought in conflicts overseas. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, they had a very different experience coming home. Uh, after just about every other war, there was you know, celebrations and parades welcoming the veterans home. Uh, when the troops start coming back in 1969 from Vietnam, there were some initial welcomings, but then you have these um, you know, sort of rabid protests that take place that disrupt these events, and as a result, the subsequent celebrations are just canceled, which uh, I think in hindsight maybe it wasn't such a good idea to cave in like that. But in any case, uh, and veterans in general were disheartened that they came home to this lack of a uh, warm reception. And if you think through it logically, I mean, we as a democracy and at that time had a draft. And so people went into the military, whether they wanted to or not, and whether they agreed with the president or not. And so it was really absurd to mm. put the blame on veterans for Vietnam, whatever you thought of it, uh, but they came to be uh, equated with what the country was, was doing in Vietnam. Now, I think you know, the sort of insanity of that eventually became obvious, and one of the things that has been more positive in the 21st century is that with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, you didn't see people blaming the troops or making them scapegoats. They you know, sometimes went after the politicians, but it's you know, really the politicians were the the blame does uh, does lie. Now, yeah, I was going to mention too something you said earlier about people not understanding what it was all about. I, I do criticize Lyndon Johnson quite heavily mm -hmm. for a number of things, and one of them is that he never really makes much of an effort to explain the war to the American people. And those around him are frequently telling him that he needs to do this, that you know, the country to be you know, to hang together needs to have the leadership telling them why they're making these sacrifices. And Johnson just refuses to do so. And he self later talks about it a bit, uh, sort of uh, remorsefully, that uh, and acknowledges it, but says that he was trying to uh, avoid uh, disrupting his domestic agenda because he wanted to be the president of the who uh, ended poverty with the great. Yeah, society. he wanted to be the next yeah. FDR, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or and bigger so, than FDR even. Right. Yeah. So, but he's you know sacrificing the country's interests overseas for you know what is really his own personal crusade, which, uh, granted, I'm. I'm I think he did believe these things would work, but of course, as, as we know, the Great Society ended up not ending poverty and, in fact, created a lot of new problems for the country. Yeah, uh, you know, I had never actually thought about that until reading your book that, uh, you know, LBJ didn't really go out of his way uh, or make a, a case to sell the war uh, to the American people. Um, certainly not, you know... Uh, <laughs> Not like I can remember uh, the George W. Bush administration, uh, you know, selling uh, the invasion of Iraq, for instance. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, I had never, I had, um, you know, and I've read a lot about the, the 60s and the time period, and uh, I had not put that or really thought about that, that, you know, well, how come LBJ didn't spend more time, um, you know, sort of... Uh, campaigning <laughs> uh, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word for the for the war itself or 
or explaining, you know, what we're doing there and why it's important and uh, what um, what the benefits to the world, not just uh, not just for South Vietnam and the South Vietnamese, uh, but the benefits of the world uh, for the American presence in defending uh, Indochina against against communism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's and actually it's funny because you mentioned FDR. FDR did actually, you know, do a good job of the salesmanship with his so-called fireside chats. Sure. Uh, I think actually, if you think of relevance to today, I think we're seeing the same problem with Joe Biden on Ukraine. He's really not done much to convince the American people why so much aid is being sent over there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we don't know exactly why necessarily at this point, but I do think he too, you know, wants to have this domestic legacy and he's not somebody who's particularly adept or um, might, might be beyond his capabilities at this point. Yeah. Also. Um, right. You know. But uh, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay. But yeah, let's get, let's get into the book itself. Cause we've already gone. Oh my God. How long have we gone already? We've already gone almost 20 minutes. So, um, so this book, Triumph Regained and uh, the first book, Triumph Forsaken and, and surely the next book, uh, they're out to sort of rebut that that orthodox view of the Vietnam War that I mentioned earlier that we've been uh, sort of taught by the culture that uh, you know it's an unjust war, it's wrongheaded, it never should have been there, et cetera, et cetera. You know, as you said earlier, uh, Vietnam was actually worth our blood and treasure. Uh, we should have been there. It's important. It was important for us to be there, but you know, the war itself was improperly fought. Um, but if you could, uh, so like this book opens in the beginning of 1965, but if you could just give us sort of like a, a short rundown, of maybe like the, the super, super cliff notes version of Triumph Forsaken, uh, the years before 1965 and how we got to the point where Triumph Regained is going to begin. So, or essentially, basically, why did we go to war in Vietnam and what were we looking to achieve there? Right. Yeah, so Triumph Forsaken picks up in 1954 at the division of Vietnam after the war between France and the Viet Minh, and the North is put under the control of Ho Chi Minh and the Communists. The South is put under Ngo Dinh Diem and his nationalists. And there's all sorts of controversies that arise from that, uh, but fundamentally it's a question of uh, – was Ho Chi Minh really a diehard communist? Because that's been a lot of the claims about him. Well, he was really more this nationalist. He was kind of like Tito. He didn't want to be part of an international communist movement. And I argue that, well, that's in fact totally false. He is a diehard communist who, you know, reveres Lenin and Mao. And so this was, there was this real threat. And then uh, I talk about the, the history of the Ziem regime, which is also highly controversial and argued that in fact he was pretty effective as the South Vietnamese leader leader for most of his tenure and things are going well up until 1963 when you have this manufactured crisis and confrontation between the government and the Buddhists and American journalists by the Buddhist propaganda turn against Siam and that leads the U.S. government to turn against Siam and then Siam is assassinated. 
And instead of fixing problems, this only makes things much worse in Vietnam. And so there's a downward spiral, which encourages North Vietnamese aggression. And the other thing, big thing that happens is Lyndon Johnson is running for president and talking about how he's the peace candidate and he's not going to send American boys to Vietnam, which then encourages Hanoi to invade in early 1965. And so it's by the middle of 65, it's apparent that if the United States doesn't commit its ground forces to the war, South Vietnam is going to fall. So Johnson then has to make this huge decision and he weighs the international consequences. And I do give him credit here in that there is very much a solid case for the so-called domino theory, which was the idea that if South Vietnam falls to communism, then the rest of Southeast Asia and other Asian countries will fall to communism. And I think that actually is a very valid strategic rationale. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a bit, but that is essentially the reason he decides to commit and he's not at all mindlessly optimistic as people would often think he knew this was going to be a difficult conflict. And so that is where the first volume ends with Johnson deciding to commit American troops and the triumph regain picks up with the first major battle in South Vietnam between American South Vietnamese troops in, in August of 1965. Now, um, a little, a little side uh, sidebar here. Um, I had uh, Stephen Knott on uh, a couple months back about uh, on his book on John F. Kennedy, and uh, he was of the opinion that uh, if Kennedy uh, had lived, uh, had not been assassinated in Dallas in November 1963, that uh, we most likely would not have been in Vietnam uh, the way we uh, eventually got in in 1965, uh, the way Lyndon Baines Johnson got us in there. Uh, do you think, um, again, this is you know a hypothetical thing, but do you think uh, Kennedy would have differed in any way uh, with Johnson's approach to Vietnam had he not been assassinated? The, certain tactical decisions, I think, would have been different, but the overall decision to intervene, I think, would be the same. I, mm -hmm. I don't buy at all the argument that he was not going to get out, and we know during his presidency he increases the number of U.S. troops from less than 1,000 to over 16,000, and he talks about how he had screwed up at the Bay of Pigs in Laos already in his term, and he would have to make a stand in, in South Vietnam. And, and mm -hmm. had he still been alive in early 65 and had heard what Johnson was hearing from everyone, which is that, yes, in fact, the whole uh, of Asia is going to fall if you bail out on your leading ally, I, I don't think there's any way Kennedy would have been willing to go along with that you know he is more of a cold war i think than than johnson is mm -hmm. really yeah and there's that fear um that you know uh, uh going back to the late 40s with the the fall of china um to the to the chinese communists and uh, no one wanted to be sort of wanted to get uh, labeled with uh you know to be one of the guys that uh, you know let china fall you know again or uh, you know, let Vietnam fall, that sort of thing. Right. In fact, uh, in the first volume, I mentioned how, you know, there's this little known episode at, 
1949, when China falls, you have a lot of Republicans screaming uh, about Truman uh, for letting this happen. But, but one of the people who's also blasting the administration is a young John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. He is foremost among those saying, you know, we we pulled the rug out from under our allies. This was a terrible thing. And uh, and he, you know, throughout the 50s, also Kennedy's a big champion of, uh, of South Vietnam. Yeah, he's, he seems to be uh, something about that uh, seems to be compensating uh, for his father's uh, sort of quasi appeasement <laughs> uh, approach to Nazi mm-hmm. Germany uh, when he was um, uh, the ambassador to the to the British Empire uh, to the court of St James mm-hmm. and and his father's reputation is you know uh, sort of soft and uh, weak. Uh, on that issue, uh, I think probably led Kennedy to be a bit more hawkish uh, on these types of questions, just to, like I said, just to sort of uh, uh, compensate for uh, his father's reputation. He didn't want to be sort of labeled, uh, you know, as the the apple falling from the tree, that sort of thing. Right. But anyway, um, so uh, one thing that's unique uh, about uh, these books in uh, histories of the Vietnam War uh, is that uh, the North and South, both North and South uh, Vietnamese, are are much more of the central actor in this story um, uh, because of the uh, you know distance and time that we now have and uh, the research that is now. Uh, been made available has let that to happen. So, uh, uh, so how did you go about uh, gathering the um, uh, the this uh, research uh, from these Vietnamese sources to uh, sort of enlighten the book? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, on the South Vietnamese side, we all have had pretty good records because the U.S. Uh, State Department, CIA, Defense Department, we're all monitoring things and reporting on them, and we can access those. And the South Vietnamese government themselves, most of their records were captured by the communists in 1975 and either destroyed or um, put out of reach. But the really important stuff is from the North Vietnamese side, and that's a really fascinating story. And the North Vietnamese remains a police state, and they don't let foreigners look into their archives nor did they let their own people write you know, broad, uh, serious histories. But what they have done is they've published a lot of documents, including some fairly um, sensitive material and a lot of military reports and memoirs. And so I've used those heavily in, in both volumes. In Triumph Forsaken, when that happened, uh, this material was only a few people had actually gotten access to it, mm-hmm. and it, a uh, person who helped really bring it to, to uh, public attention was a, a gentleman named Merle Pribino, who was a CIA translator, but he um, acquired a lot of this documentation and then translated it. And um, at the time, you know, people were complaining that you know only privileged people like me were getting access to it. Well, after after that book came out. Um, more, you know, Pribino offered it to other people, and some have taken it. But one of the interesting things is that a lot of the sort of academic historians, especially of the more orthodox views, 
have basically just ignored it. So rather than saying, you know, saying, well, hey, look, look at all this new information. Let's, you know, factor that into our thinking. They've simply uh, ignored it. And I think a lot of it is because so much of it is, runs contrary to what they said about the war, uh, particularly in, in with respect to how how well U.S. policy operations are going, because we were led to believe that the United States was consistently doing stupid things and uh, misrepresenting its effectiveness. And these North Phoenix sources actually contradict a great deal of that. And, and there's a lot more in, in the new volume, which, um, again, breaks a lot of new ground. I'm going to give you one example that's particularly prominent. The Battle of Quezon in 1968, which uh, some of your younger viewer, listeners may know more from the Bruce Springsteen song, <laughs> uh, but the old, older viewers will know that this was this crucial battle in 1968. So the conventional wisdom in the U.S. was that this was a diversionary attack, and the wily North Vietnamese duped the you know, foolish American command into thinking that they were really trying to take Quezon, and it, this just lured Americans away from the Tet Offensive, uh, which is taking place around the same time. But what the North Vietnamese sources tell us is, no, in fact, they really did want to take Quezon. This was going to be another great victory like Dien Bien Phu in 1954, and the only reason they didn't take it is because they suffered massive casualties from American firepower. And so this is just one example of how, in fact, what the U.S. was doing actually made sense and was actually uh, effective. Yeah. So the getting to the armed forces, um, so in 1965, what is the, the makeup of the troops in Vietnam, in the Army, in the Marine Corps especially? Um, you know, what what is the makeup of of these units like and you know what what is the average gi or marine like in 1965 and early 1965 when the war is going to start or start oh, picking oh. up in intensity yeah. yeah when the combat really begins in august of 1965 you have a force that has a substantial number of draftees which is also a great number of volunteers uh, morale is very high. There's a greater percentage of high school graduates than we've had in any previous American armed force. It has all social groups represented in rough proportion to their uh, pr- uh, representation in the population. You have a sizable African-American contingent, which is really the first time that they're fully integrated. And... It's a, it's a very impressive fighting force, and it's you know also using some new technologies that have never been used full scale, uh, most notably the helicopter, which will really revolutionize the battlefield. Uh, you, but you don't have any of this sort of major racial problems or drug problems that will spring up later in the war, um, you know, and up through '68 really. There, people are quite impressed at how well uh, the American troops are fighting and how well they're actually getting along with each other. Yeah, and uh, something I was surprised by, too, were that volunteers, 
uh, were a higher percentage of the armed forces serving in Vietnam than were serving in the armed forces during the Second World War, uh, which uh, sort of shocked me just because, you know, <laughs> we hear all these stories about you know, World War II, all the, you know, everybody rushed to enlist and, you know, after Pearl Harbor and the patriotic duty and all that stuff. And Vietnam, we've always been sort of taught that it's, you know, it was all these like draftees that were like the, the poor dead end kids who were the dregs of society, didn't really have anywhere else to go or, you know, n- not, you know, no sort of like bright future ahead of them. Uh, but that's not really the case. Uh, as you said, the the average GI in Vietnam was better educated than the average military age male as a whole at that time. And uh, another thing you pointed out in the book that a, a you know a quarter of all the casualties we're going to suffer in Vietnam came from troops uh, whose I guess you call it like their income level back home would have placed them in you know like the top 30% of American society. So it wasn't just you know these you know these poor bastard uh you know poor kids who were getting drafted and uh getting shipped over and you know taking the uh uh the the whole onslaught of the war um you know while all the rich kids burned their draft cards and or you know went to (laughs) went to canada or something like that you know Mm -hmm. yes and and part of it is the generational issue they said you uh, the baby boom is just sort of getting started when Vietnam comes. The silent generation before them is much more serious and generally more conservative and patriotic. And so you know, they are they are lining up by and large. Um, you know, another thing that is worth pointing out is that there is a huge regional variation. Uh, you have throughout the war in the southwest and southeast, um, South Central, you have very little opposition to the war, even at college campuses. You know, most of the opposition will come from the Pacific Northwest, the Upper Midwest, and the Northeast. And, of course, those are also the places where you get more media types. And, and, you know, and so the media people, um, you know, people like Ken Burns now, who uh, have become... The self-professed experts think that mm-hmm. um, you know these are people are somehow you know are emblematic, but in fact, for most Americans, we're never really comfortable with the anti-war movement, and mm-hmm. you know most of them did see this as a patriotic duty to go and serve your country. Yeah. What uh, speaking of Ken Burns, uh, I assume you saw that documentary that came out um, however many two, three, four years ago, something like that. Uh, what did you think of it? Uh, yeah, I re- actually wrote um, lengthy critiques in both the Wall Street Journal and City Journal, and and uh, your listeners can find um, more details there. But he, yeah, Burns is one of those who I think was you know pro- opposed to the war at the time, and then kind of felt guilty that he didn't go, and so he decided he wanted to um, justify this by showing that that it was this terrible war and he's only, you know, there was an, another series earlier by, by Stanley Carno and PBS, which was back in the eighties, which is, uh, this is only maybe slightly less biased than that, but it, it recycles most of the you know, old myths. And, and when they were putting together 
historical experts. They only picked people who were sort of on the left side of the spectrum, and mm-hmm. they they uh, they initially contacted me and a couple others, but then decided they weren't really interested in what we had to say. Uh, but yeah, I think it's wrong in um, in so many ways. I mean, one one of the ones I think was particularly egregious was how he tries to make you think that most Vietnam veterans are, you know, disillusioned, disgruntled, depressed, suicidal uh, as a result of being psychologically damaged from. Yes. And so, you know, as I point out, there's uh, some polls taken not too long after the war that showed, you know, 90% of Vietnam veterans were actually said they were glad that they had gone to Mm -hmm. serve in Vietnam. And, uh, you wouldn't get that impression at all. I mean, another thing he does is he cherry picks um, some battles, uh, and I know these well because a lot of it's in the period I cover in this book. But basically, for the most part, you know, the Ameri- this North Vietnamese get crushed in almost every big battle. There were a few where they got crushed, but they also hurt the Americans fairly badly because of uh, usually because of mistakes or chance or weather or something. And so Burns focuses just on that small group to try to make it seem like the the war actually wasn't going very well for the Americans. And um, this is just a lot of you know, cherry-picking of evidence and um, misrepresentation, a lot, a lot of errors of omission, too, just leaving out very important things that happened. And, uh, yeah, I mean, most veterans I know who saw it were pretty disgusted with the final product. Yeah, it seems that that sort of caricature of the Vietnam vet is like a again someone who's been sort of psychologically damaged beyond repair by the war uh, has been something that's sort of like a trope. You know, at this point, like it's you know, like I said, it's in platoon or uh, born on the Fourth of July or uh, you know, a lot of that media that came out in uh, that that late 80s or mid to late 80s period or apocalypse now or something like that or um and you know that all these guys are they're all screwed up in the head they're freaking drug addicts uh you know they all had a hard time uh coming home and and reestablishing themselves in the in the uh in you know back home and there's that trope in a lot of the the Vietnam media at that time about, you know, the guys who went back to Nam for like a second tour because they just couldn't fit in, in America anymore after being in Nam and that sort of thing. And, uh, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, but that, that trope has had a really, uh, and again, it goes back and like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, the people really didn't know how to sort of approach and handle Vietnam veterans when it, came to that because probably because a lot of it had to do with that trope of these guys being all you know you know uh, screwed up junkies and <laughs> that sort of thing you know yeah and there there is this notion and this was also pushed by the anti-war movement and the people who were trying to show why this was such a bad war that uh this you know the, the term ptsd was coined and it was portrayed as if Vietnam was this peculiar war that created this 
an unprecedented, strange mental illness called PTSD, and everybody was getting it. And if you actually spend time looking at the history of war, which you know pretty much any of these people did, uh, you will see that what we what was would be called PTSD is something that you've had in every war, mm-hmm. you know, going back, you know, millennia. I mean, the, the human, you know, anatomy has not changed significantly, and humans react this roughly the same to stress, you know, in the 1960s as they did in the 1940s and as they did in the 1860s and, in, you know, during the Trojan War. So um, it was a really misleading argument that, that was made and... Uh, it's also there's a lot of confusion about is this sort of a permanent condition and uh, much of the many of the symptoms of PTSD were, would not be permanent um, although you know, some people had them they were also mm-hmm. made much worse by the fact that you have people being uh, maligned when they come home you know if you come back after going through all this and people are you know putting you down for it and, and ungrateful, that's going to probably have a negative psychological impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, the men, the American forces, uh, or, or I guess more in general, the, the Vietnamese themselves, what uh, the combatants, uh, what does the, the NVA, the uh, North Vietnamese Army, and, and and their Viet Cong proxies. Um, what what do those uh, forces look like? And then the same thing uh, for the South Vietnamese, the Army, the Republic of Vietnam, the the Arvins. Um, what do those armed forces look like at you know at the in 1965? And so one of the popular myths in the U.S. is that there was a real difference between the North Vietnamese Army, the NVA, and the Viet Cong or the VC. Now, some the anti-war movement actually was claiming the VC was not even connected to the North Vietnamese Army. They were sort of a homegrown movement. And that the North we we now know from the North Vietnamese side is complete nonsense. They were never separate. Uh, but it's also interesting is when they talk about their units in their internal documents, they don't even distinguish between VC and NVA. You know, they, mm-hmm. they don't say this is the first VC regiment. It's just the first regiment because it's, you know, everything is all under the same chain of command. You have North Vietnamese in leadership positions throughout the Viet Cong. And by 1965, you're already starting to see a trend that will accelerate where uh, the Southerners have been killed in such numbers and they're having so many difficulties replacing them that the North Vietnamese are sending troops from North Vietnam into these so-called Viet Cong units. Um, now, the in North Vietnamese themselves are, you know, a martial people. They're good fighters. Although by 65 too, that they're suffering such attrition that they have to shorten their training times, and so their capabilities will deteriorate, deteriorate over time. Now, on the South Vietnamese side, uh, they are still in 65 recuperating from this disastrous coup in 1963 because that coup had caused a series of uh, follow-on coups and each time people were purged for being too loyal to the last regime um, and you know we do know the South Vietnamese generally fight well when their leaders are good 
um, and they do have some good leaders at this time. They're not, um, they, they lag behind the North Vietnamese, I would say, um, but they have potential, and they, they still are um, you know, a capable fighting force in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, William Westmoreland, the general in, in command of the, I guess you'd call it the overall war effort in Vietnam, <clears throat> excuse me, um, he's always been a character or a figure that's been sort of uh, derided uh, sort of by both left and right uh, for his strategic and tactical approach to uh, Vietnam, which is basically set in 1965. So what is Westmoreland's strategic and tactical approach, and um, is he someone that uh, you feel is sort of unfairly maligned um, in the histories of, uh, of the Vietnam War? Yes, I do think he's been unfairly maligned, certainly. He comes up with this idea of search-and-destroy operations, which are basically sending out American troops to go look for and destroy the enemy forces and wear them down through attrition. And people have complained, well, no, he, that was not that was unimaginative. They should have been shouldn't have been going looking out for the enemy and they could have just waited till the enemy showed up on their doorstep and a lot of problems with that. I mean, but perhaps the best example of why that wouldn't work was seen at the Battle of Hue in 1968, where they did let the enemy get close to the cities and then they end up, uh, the city of Hue, they end up having to destroy much of the city in combat. Um, and North Vietnamese sources also tell us that in fact, these operations were quite effective and, inflicting damage. The Americans are also good at destroying the food supplies of the North Vietnamese, which makes it a lot harder for them to operate. Now, as I point out, Westmoreland from pretty early on sees that the enemy under the current constraints can just keep feeding more troops into the South. So no matter how many are killed, they can just send in replacements. And so he starts arguing in favor of expanding the war, particularly into Laos, where the Ho Chi Minh Trail and supplies are coming through, and also intensifying the war against North Vietnam. Johnson, uh, for most of his time in office, decides to instead listen to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, who is claiming that, well, no, these other measures aren't going to help that much, and they're dangerously going to provoke the Chinese and the Soviets. And as I argue in the book, he's wrong on both counts that, in fact, Strategically, the United States would have much, been much better off had it expanded the geographic parameters of its operations and that the Chinese and the Soviets were not going to come in if the United States had done that. Yeah, Nor- uh, North Vietnam's relationship with China is uh, deteriorating <laughs> uh, seriously during this time period, uh, as you note in the book. Yes, and that's one of the reasons why I think, from a strategic point of view, American intervention in Vietnam is a success. As I mentioned, the original outcome, original objective is to prevent Southeast Asia and Asia from falling to communism, and ultimately, the United States does that. You know, when South Vietnam falls in 1975, you don't see these countries falling. Now, the, the opponents of the war 
cite that as evidence that, well, look, the dominant theory couldn't have been valid because it wasn't valid in 1975. But you know, I argue that you know that the world has changed uh, hugely between 65 and 75, and Vietnam is a critical uh, is really the most important reason for that, and uh, it is partly because certain countries get stronger. There's this big coup in Indonesia that takes place, mm-hmm. and then also it's what happens in the communist world where you see um, China and North Vietnam very close in 65, but then the Soviets become more involved uh, over time, partly be- to help North Vietnam with its air defenses, and then this poisons the relations between uh, China and the Soviet Union, and also between China and North Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then by uh, by as early as I think January of 1966, we're we're already seeking uh, a negotiated peace uh, with the North Vietnamese uh, for the war, and the, these the peace talks are going to be uh, an issue that uh, sort of going to be the a thorn in the side of of the armed forces and the Johnson administration specifically. Uh, but yeah, but as early, we've only, you know, uh, really been there in significant force for uh, not even half a year. And the United States is already uh, looking for a negotiated uh, settlement to the war. Yes, well, Johnson is under a lot of pressure from the liberal wing of his party to come up with some negotiated way out of the war. Now, a lot of, there's a lot of wishful thinking here, and, uh, you know, a lot of them keep telling them, well, if, if we only reduce the bombing, then they will be more willing to negotiate, and by bombing, we're provoking them. Well, this also we've seen from the North Vietnamese side. In fact, that was exactly the opposite of what was true, that if, you're, if they're under no pressure, they have little incentive to negotiate, and uh, so when the U.S. does these bombing halts to try to show its goodwill at North Vietnamese, just take advantage of them. And it's not until ultimately in 1972 when Richard Nixon really does take the gloves off that that's, that's when you actually see the North Vietnamese finally willing to negotiate. Mm-hmm. So uh, throughout 1966 and 1967, the war is going to, sort of escalate in intensity and uh, part of that is the d- decision uh, making of the North Vietnamese themselves uh, but we're <laughs> sort of running out of time so we gotta sort of gently skip over that and um, mm-hmm. it gets to 1968 and uh, and the Tet Offensive which um, you know if we've learned in uh, if kids have learned in history classes or anything, or again, like what the, the, the culture is sort of the, the just so story about uh, the Tet Offensive is um, that Tet showed that uh, the war was uh, a stalemate at best and unwinnable. Uh, you know, that Walter Crackheit went on the air and, and pronounced it so, and Lyndon Johnson said that, oh, I've lost Concrete, which means I'm going to lose the country on Vietnam, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but Tet was actually a um, major, major defeat uh, for the North Vietnamese. Uh, what was uh, what was their intention with the offensive, and you know, what were the North Vietnamese hoping to achieve uh, with the Tet Offensive, and did they achieve it? 
Yeah, so the fighting it was not going well for them, so they decided that they were going to change course and try to attack the urban areas where they'd largely stayed away, and that the population then would rise up in those cities. Well, as it turned out, the people didn't rise up, they didn't care much for the communists, and so the communists then were exposed trying to hold on to these cities, and they get really pulverized, and then that part is relatively well known. Now, what's less known is in the, there's two more offenses mm-hmm. later in the year which are even more um, devastating from the communist point of view. And it's after those that finally the communists are, basically don't no longer have the capability to keep this major warfare going on, and so they then shift towards lower level of combat. Um, and what's also interesting in, is that, uh, as you mentioned, there's this idea that somehow that Tet, you know, put an end to America's interest in this war. But actually, as I found, the public support for the war continues to be high through the end of 68. And the uh, you know country ends up electing Richard Nixon, who is one of the country's you know hardest, most hardline anti-communists. And he, he's talking about how, yes, we can achieve peace, but this is not a peace that involves surrender. Um, and Hubert Humphrey is also not talking about trying to get out um, so yeah, it's really not true that the country had just given up. The country wanted to you know, start to turn things over to the South Vietnamese, but they were not in a mood to capitulate. Mm-hmm. And the the number of uh, even I is this true? I I think I read this in the book. By uh, basically by the end of 1968, the number uh, the, the Arvin forces, the South Vietnamese forces, are uh, taking on a higher share of the burden. Um, when it comes to uh, the fighting in the war, their you know their percentage of their uh, casualties compared to uh, American forces is is rising. That that this is already beginning to happen. Uh, you know before uh, before the turnover to the Nixon administration and you know Vietnamization and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's correct. And one of the you know, beneficial impacts of the Tet Offensive is that the South Vietnamese really seem to take things more seriously. There's, you know, when the North Vietnamese take the city of Hue, they they execute several thousand government officials and civilians, and so they they really, you know, I think this brings home to them the real consequences mm-hmm. of failure, and they they do take things more seriously from here on. Yeah. So uh, shortly after Tet, Westmoreland, um, he's not really relieved of command. He's just sort of cycled home, uh, and uh, he's replaced by General Creighton Abrams. Um, did Abrams's approach to the war differ from Westmoreland's in any significant way? And how did Westmoreland? Uh, what kind of war did Westmoreland hand off to Abrams? Yes, there's been a lot written about this transition and, and a lot of claims that Abrams was very different. But I actually argue they, they're not that different. And Abrams, when he first comes in, middle of 68, explicitly says, we're going to keep doing what we have been doing, and it's working. And he doesn't change things until the end of this third offensive I mentioned, and it's because of the fact that the North Vietnamese have sort of exhausted themselves that he is able to 
shift approaches and spend more time using troops in small groups to control villages. And by uh, back to the press a little bit. So by by Tet, uh, really, um, from your research, does is basically most of the mainstream press sort of against the war at this point, or is this something that just so, is sort of a uh, appears that way by the um, influence of the more sort of coastal um, sources like the Times and the Post. I mean, is or media outlets say in the uh, you know newspapers in Indianapolis or or Kansas City or Denver or uh, you know Wichita or something like that. Are they uh, still generally in favor of this war? Or is this something where 1968 and Tet is really when the media is going to coalesce into uh, pushing this war uh, to uh, end as quickly as possible. Uh, there's still a lot of elements in the media, even at the New York Times, Washington Post, Newsweek, who are from the older generation that experienced World War II, and they tend to be a lot more sober and um, generally more sympathetic to the U.S. cause. You have this younger generation, which... Um, it was back to the ZMQ I was talking about people like David Halbersam and Neil mm-hmm. Sheehan who um, and those guys actually are for the war originally and they go through this metamorphosis and some uh, claim later they weren't even ever for the war which isn't true but um, you do see yeah, a lot of the press starting to turn against it and uh, part of that does have to do with the fact that um, Lyndon Johnson was pretty deceitful in a number of cases, so there's a certain amount of um, uh, comprehensibility about this in that um, you know, the media doesn't generally like to be lied to. But um, you know, we also know politicians in general are not always going to tell the truth mm-hmm. to journalists. Uh, but certainly, yeah, the media is turning against it, but the public is not, uh, you know, to its credit, the public's not paying all that much attention to media pain because they're still pretty supportive of the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were critical of Johnson, or, or the book itself uh, is mostly critical of Johnson, but it seems like um, there's a little bit of sympathy uh, for the... Uh, situation he was in and what he was trying uh, to do or to manage uh, for someone like uh, uh, you know Robert McNamara uh, not really any sympathy but it seemed I don't know it just seemed to me reading it that they're uh, you're you're very critical of Johnson's handling of the war uh, but there seems to be um, uh, some uh good feeling or good feeling toward him a little bit in the book so uh, how exactly should we think of of johnson's handling of the war itself it, it is uh, as i mentioned briefly in the early part he i think is rightly to be blamed for these misleading statements about how he's not going to fight for vietnam which you know, in addition to misleading the American people, convinces the North Vietnamese that they can get away with this big invasion. And then he makes a number of mistakes 
in terms of prosecuting the war, said he misses, he ignores these recommendations for intensifying the war. He does get credit for, you know, the decision to fight itself and for uh, reasons of containing communism, which I agree with. And then the other thing I really credit him for is that in near the end of his presidency, he eventually realizes that McNamara is uh, becoming rather deluded about some things, especially in terms of the bombing. And McNamara is claiming that uh, the bombing really is only uh, for psychological and symbolic reasons, and it's not militarily important, which is contrary to what pretty much everyone in the military is saying. Mm -hmm. And so Johnson will ease him out, and then Clark Clifford comes in, and Johnson thinks Clifford's going to be more hawkish, but Clifford actually is more like McNamara, and so you see in, in 1968 Johnson repeatedly saying Clifford's wrong, and that uh, we should be paying more attention to the military. So he finally, sort of in his last year in office, um, redeems himself to a degree. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, we're uh, just about out of time, so I'll leave you um, sort of like a two-part question, I guess. Um, specifically, um, something I ask uh, everybody that come comes on the podcast is... Uh, you know, what would you like the audience to uh, get out of this book? Or, you know, what's the one thing you'd want them to take away from reading it? And also, um, what are the major lessons, if there are any major lessons in this uh, in this book from this era of the Vietnam War that, um, that should inform uh, American military and diplomatic policy in the present day? Excellent question. The most important thing, I think, is that people should conclude that most of what you've probably heard about the Vietnam War is either partially or completely false. And there are a number of other people like me who have put out you know, very different views, um, Gunter Louie, Louis Sorley, um, B.G. Burkett, a few other people, um, but, but it is truly something where I think there has been enormous distortion and then conscious efforts to try to sort of marginalize people who don't agree with that view. Um, but as I said, veter most veterans actually tend to agree with this view, so that is really the biggest point I'd like to uh, to get across. And as far as lessons for Today, there's there's lots of them that talked about how importance of presidential leadership. Uh, I think one that I've been commenting on recently with respect to Ukraine is the need to be wary of accepting what you hear in the press about what's going on, because we've been getting in case of Ukraine, this narrative of the Ukrainians trouncing the Russians left and right, mm -hmm. and that that should guide our policy. Well, we're already starting to see indications that that's not true. But you know, if you look at Vietnam, so much of what was said by the press and even within the government, you know, we, we get so much wrong. You know, the fog of war, as it was described in the early 19th century, is, has not gone away despite technology and 
we need to be very careful and circumspect uh, about thinking we really know exactly what's going on. But there are things you can do, certainly, to dig for more information. And Congress has, uh, and we occasionally saw this in Vietnam, Congress can and should really press the executive branch for information to try to figure out what's actually happening. All right. Got it. Sounds good. Okay, well, uh, before we go, is there um, anything else you want to plug before we leave? Any uh, appearances or uh, any social media or anything like that do you want to, uh, you know, plug before we hit um, the road? I'd just say um, the uh, Victor Davis Hansen wrote an excellent uh, piece about the, the two books in American Greatness and uh, if uh, listeners haven't had a chance to see that, I'd recommend they they look at that. It's been circulating a lot, uh, especially among Vietnam veterans. And as I said, this is really written first and foremost for uh, Vietnam veterans. All right, great. Well, again, the uh, book is Triumph Regained, The Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Uh, it's the second book in a planned trilogy on the Vietnam War, the first book being... Uh, Triumph Forsaken, which I also read in prep for this podcast and uh, um, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed uh, both books. There was lots of lots of things in here I had uh, did not know about and or, or had a general feeling or idea about, but finally got uh, some some concrete specifics behind it. And it's uh, uh, they're both uh, very uh, extremely readable. Uh, uh, entertaining books and uh, for those of you uh, who are interested in uh, that time period or who lived through that time period and um, you know have recollections that don't jibe with the (laughs) uh, the consensus of that time period then uh, you know these uh, books are definitely for you and uh, highly highly recommended for you know anybody who's a a student of uh, military history American history uh, any of that stuff. So go ahead and uh, and uh, buy these books again. Uh, the latest being uh, Triumph Regained: The Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. And uh, I thank you uh, again very very much to uh, the author of these books, Dr. Mark Moyer of Hillsdale College. Uh, Dr. Moyer, again, I uh, really really appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, uh, taking the time out to discuss uh, discuss these books with me. Thanks again for having me on. Oh, no problem. And again, if you like this podcast, uh, please consider leaving us a uh, five-star review and sharing with your friends. And uh, if you have uh, books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can uh, reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, you can also look for us on our uh, Twitter account You know when we announce new episodes and that sort of stuff. So... Uh, check us out there. Our uh, Twitter handle is at illbooks, at I-L-L books. So uh, make sure you give us a follow, or if you have any questions or comments or whatnot, uh, feel free to send us a DM. And uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, thank you very much for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Uh, love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Take care.